USB is there to give this confidence, to be the benchmark, to guide investments into those that help us and those that do not. Welcome to another episode of The Net Zero Life. I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and I'm here to peel back the lessons, ideas, and philosophies from leaders working in climate so you can live a sustainable life that brings the world closer to net zero emissions. On the show today is Elena Schmidt, Executive Director of RSB. RSB, or the Roundtable on Sustainable Biomaterials, is a global membership organization that drives the sustainable transition to a bio-based and circular economy. RSB's sustainability framework has been developed by its multi-stakeholder membership and is a uniquely robust and credible foundation for supporting innovative solutions to the climate crisis. RSB uses this foundation to develop projects, new knowledge, and solutions that equip key decision makers to deliver positive impacts for people and the planet. RSB's executive director, Elena, who we've got on the show today, has a strong sustainability background with a record of delivering robust product and business model innovations. Serving as the head of the, I'm going to mess this up because it's German. I think it's German. Tuv Sud, T-U-V with U with the two dots over it. Sud, S-U-D, also two dots over it. The certification body for climate and energy before joining RSB. She has extensive experience in working with complex chain of custody settings, developing strategic business models, and managing innovation projects to establish new certification services in the private and public sector. She holds master's degrees in both environmental and political science. This is a great episode. RSB's work is critical to building markets that support the net zero and circular economy. Why do we need to build markets? Because if you don't have markets, you don't have players, both demand or supply. During the episode, we cover Elena's climate journey, the first principle of market mechanisms and standards that support those markets, and how RSB's work is moving the world closer to net zero. Plus, we dive into the inner workings of sustainable aviation fuel, SAF, fun for aviation gigs like me. Elena, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I thought that we could begin by talking about your early career as an auditor. And if you can tell us a little bit about how you got into where you were, how sustainability came into play, and then how that led you to find RSB. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure to do that. But Really to tell the story about how I became an auditor and how sustainability came into my life and where this interest and motivation is, is coming from, this goes back even further than than my very first steps of the of my career because it is actually a very, very early childhood experience and also memory. I'm sure all of you know that in 1986, Chernobyl happened. And even though it is such a long distance from South Bavaria, where I was raised, I remember that a couple of days after it happened, I sat outside with, with my neighbor. We were watching the clouds in the sky. And he said, Elena, this rain will be toxic. And then really a bit later it rained and all this contaminated air poured over us and the soils and contaminating everything so the radioactivity was stored in the soil where it is still detectable so still 
when we are collecting mushrooms or deer that is eating these mushrooms, it needs to be analyzed before it can be consumed. And I remember also very vividly these stacks of milk powder stored in the basement because fresh milk was not safe anymore. And I remember how scared I was. And even being a very small child, it already then taught me that there is not such a thing like clean energy. No, sorry, clean and cheap energy. It, it always comes at a cost that could be more than just the, the, the financial, um, direct financial impact. And so young I was, I really wanted to do something about it. And I already then happily um, also joined my parents in these electricity saving exercises and already um, pushed um, for renewable electricity. And that was in the mid 80s to remember. And then, yeah, this really brought sustainability into my life. Uh, a very, very early childhood stage, and it carried me into the into the position where I am today, and also um, helped me um, starting um, all these fantastic activities and projects. And so, if you can set the stage a little bit, uh, add some details to it. How not necessarily how old were you, but where were you? Were you in school at the time of Chernobyl? And then, how quickly did that influence your career? I know that. Um, you know, many listeners come from an American background where the education timeline is a little bit different, but if you can tell us a little bit about what that education pathway looked like for you and how you got to where you are. It was, I was really very, very young then. So I was, I was really in elementary school and looking at my career, maybe fast forward a little bit to when I was 18, 19, because there indeed was a very, very important um, further step um, of my career. So after school, so that was then the, the age of 18, I moved to Berlin without my parents. And of course, Berlin, the city is a very, very exciting place to be in when you're 18 and 19 and the first time without your parents. So what I did there is I worked for the biggest environmental NGO in Germany in their policy advocacy office in Germany. And they organized events, exhibitions. They organized those events for policymakers to get them a better understanding of sustainable transport, biodiversity issues, protection of ecosystems. They fought for clean air, water and healthy soils. Looking at my career and my understanding of what is important, also building the foundation of understanding of my current job and role. One event that they organized was of particular importance. So they worked on this event with the German car manufacturer Volkswagen to auction one of the their newly developed cars. And this this new car only consumed three liters of fuel over 100 kilometer. And they got this car being designed by a female artist 
And for the auction, um, the money that was raised went to a fund to protect um, very precious conservation areas in, in, in Germany. So at that time, that was in the, in the very early 2000s, for a German environmental NGO, um, it was a very, very big step and a very new approach to work with um, the industry and such a big player like, like Volkswagen. So, but for me, also to my understanding of of my current work, there were two great things to learn. The first one was the importance of collaboration. So acknowledging that you have different views, but still bringing these stakeholders together to one table and that this can generate better ideas than the individual viewpoints. That was really essential and still is really an essential component and very important um, uh, focus point for the RSB as an organization. And the second important learning of that was the responsibility that industry has to drive a green transformation. So the importance to get industry players on board to also guide the innovative powers was also really key at that point and still is. So after um, this year in Berlin, where I worked um, in a gap year for the um, environmental NGO, I then went to university and my initial plan was um, to study um, bio chemical engineering. But after this year in, Le um, in Berlin, I was so attracted to the policy space. Uh, I saw how much can be moved by policy that I completely changed my approach. I had applied to become a biochemical engineer and I, I got the place at the university, but then I rejected it and went to study political sciences. I did that and completed that, um, started to work, but still I found that something was missing um, and I wanted to deepen my technical understanding. So I then um, started a further study um, and got a Master of Science in Environmental Sciences. And with that, I then started with a certification body where I then became the auditor that you um, that you mentioned. And that was really then the, the start of the of the formal career um, uh, and the, the foundation of um, my the role that I now have. Yeah, and we'll jump into that role uh, as the executive director of RSB and sustainability standards more generally. I think it's worthwhile to talk a little bit about the culture of Germany, though, as you were growing up and in terms of the things that you're mentioning, energy efficiency, you know, doing energy efficiency exercises with your family as a young person, biodiversity, the importance of clean energy. As a person growing up in America, these things didn't become part of the zeitgeist until probably the last five-ish years. What about it, the German culture that um, allowed that um, sense of values to permeate the, the people living there much sooner than uh, here in America? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And I, I never thought of it that way. Maybe it was it was really that Chernobyl event that impacted um, specifically the south of Germany to a much much bigger extent than than other regions. As I said, um, many many families had to had to change how they how they feed their children. Um, being aware that your current 
food, that your current milk is not safe anymore. Um, knowing that your children couldn't couldn't play outside because there's toxicity in the air. I think those were very, very impactful experiences. Also, maybe interesting to to mention here that that my mom at the time she uh, studied psychology, and she wrote her master thesis about the the traumata that had been created for young mothers through Chernobyl. So I would say that for for the discussion and the zeitgeist at that time, Chernobyl was was really really impactful and was also the start of the societal coalitions to push for renewable electricity really started then in the mid 80s and as you say that was really really early let's transition to rsb and sustainability standards more generally how do you explain rsb to someone who's never heard of it before um you know the roundtable sustainable biomaterials plays a massive role behind the scenes and then i think from there we'll jump into sustainability standards more generally Absolutely. The RSB you can see as a collaborative network guiding industry into a sustainable future to advance the transition of the industry that we that we now need. We see now that there is an urgency like never before. I think we all today feel that climate change is really happening. We experience wildfires, droughts, hurricanes, devastating like never before. We see also plastic pollution. We know about the collapse of biodiversity and ecosystem, which will affect food availability globally. So, and we also see how all this affects the most vulnerable of our society. Now, looking at the latest IPCC report, so the report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, it shows that the window of opportunity is narrowing significantly. And the important thing here is the longer that we wait for a solution, the harder it will become. And we see that we as a global society, we entered in these high risk zones of planetary boundaries. So it means the um, planetary boundaries is a concept that identifies and determines the stability and the functioning of the Earth system. Now, to bring us back into the safe zones of our planetary boundaries, when we look at climate change, we look at biodiversity, look at ecosystem functions, we see that net zero is not sufficient anymore. We have to now guide investments into a direction where really positive impacts can be created. So what do I mean by positive impacts? For example, solutions, innovations that are able to take CO2 out of the atmosphere, solutions that are able to store uh, carbon in the soils, but also solutions that are able to restore ecosystems, solutions um, that can improve livelihoods globally. And to your question on what the what the RSB does and already linking into the sustainability standards, there are so many amazing solutions and so many solutions that claim to be able to solve all those challenges. 
that, that we are now facing, but they're not equally helping us. Some of them do better, some of them do worse. And some of these new solutions that claim to help us, they're even far worse than our current coal-fired energy systems. So a benchmark is needed that qualifies those innovations into those that help and those that don't. And we need to have confidence that we are doing the right thing. We cannot do the trial and error anymore because we now have this urgency of the climate change that is actually happening. And RSB is there to give this confidence, to be the benchmark, to guide investments into those that help us and those that do not. And we do this based on the robust sustainability standard that has been developed for the RSB. People may or may not be familiar with internet protocols, HTTPS, TCP IP, ways that the backbone of the internet and, and in more in the common parlance is now the Bitcoin and Ethereum protocols. And it's a way of communicating to make sure we're all on the same page. Mm -hmm. I think also, you know, everyone is familiar with money and, and money is this ultimate standard of trading value. And so as you mentioned, the importance of being able to quantify in a standard means the impact of a sustainability initiative is so crucial to truly achieving net zero. Lots of different organizations are part of RSB and then help create the sustainability standard. Heineken, Target, Orsted, but also there's indigenous communities and there's policymakers. And so can you tell us a little bit about the breakdown of the chapters of RSB and then how that influences the actual work that they create? Absolutely. Absolutely happy to do that. And for that, I would also like to go a little bit back into the history of the RSB, if you, if you allow. It was in 2007 when scientists of the University of Lausanne understood, together with other important people, of course, that for a green industry transformation, we will need massive volumes of alternative feedstock that can replace our current fossil feedstock. And they also understood that there are massive risks coming with the sourcing and increasing the availability of those feedstocks. Because as we all, in the meantime, got to, uh, got to learn, the additional feedstock on biomass cultivation can create enormous sustainability issues. Just thinking about deforestation, land grabbing, overusing of water sources. So what did these scientists at the University of Lausanne do? Not the obvious. So they did not write an academic article about biomass sustainability issues. No. What did they do? They brought together this huge and diverse array of stakeholders to one table to answer the question, how should we produce alternative food stock? How should we produce new innovative materials in a way that it does not harm? So they put the question out and then they embarked on a multi-stakeholder journey which means that they brought together all these different stakeholder types that you mentioned. So the big brands, producers, environmental NGOs, social NGOs, academia, and they arranged 
standard development process so well done, so inclusive, so transparent, like never seen before. They were also laughed at for this inclusivity of all the different stakeholder types, but they considered it a necessity. And it was really this process of an inclusive, multi-stakeholder standard development process that created a sustainability framework that is now seen as the most holistic, the most ambitious, the most credible sustainability framework for a sustainable industry transformation available. And the interesting thing is that the standard or a sustainability framework is considered so ambitious because we are not only looking at risk mitigation, we are not looking only at the do not harm approach, but we're going beyond. And I think this is really due to these many, many different stakeholders being involved that they already foresaw at that time. So it's more than a decade ago that more needs to be embedded in such a sustainability standard, that innovations need to be guided into those solutions that can contribute positive impacts. As I said, solutions that could store carbon, take CO2 out of the atmosphere, improve livelihoods, um, work on uh, overusing water resources. And this super ambitious standard is now used in the sectors of aviation, shipping, packaging, heat, cosmetics, and, and, and many more. So truly really this huge array of sectors that use the RSB because it is so ambitious, because it really guides into a direction where we can do positive things with um, the, the investments that we're doing. And I also want to point out that the RSB standard is not just an on-product label because it is so robust and holistic. It influences policy development. So, for example, ICAO, which is the UN Organization for Civil Aviation, they recently, over the last years, developed a mechanism to decarbonize civil aviation. And one of the options in this mechanism is to use alternative jet fuel. So they worked on a sustainability standard to make fuel eligible under this mechanism. And the RSB standard guided this development. And then also the RSB standard guides bioeconomy roadmaps. So regional strategies on how we can develop new feedstock solutions, as we already discussed and you mentioned, it is used by global brands and airlines to guide their investment decisions for new supply chains. And also we convene our stakeholders to develop the standard even further. So currently we are convening a power to x working group. We have the space for, for environmental NGOs, for social NGOs, for academia to come together with those producers and brands and airlines to together think about this question. How, how should we or how do we have to design a sustainability standard that does not harm, but even creates positive impacts? Sustainability standards for people who aren't used to hearing them or aren't used to hearing people talking about them. It's so important because it's truly a market maker and sustainable aviation fuel is such a great example of that. It's very clear for an airline to understand if a route is profitable or not. Right. And we measure that with dollars. 
add some color here in the sense that back in my time at working at a cargo airline, we were taking a 78% reduction in carbon emissions for sustainable aviation fuel. But there's a big question around how do you actually calculate that number? And so an alternative jet fuel, whether that comes from animal fats or from crops, whatever it is, it still has to be moved across the world. And then often it's moving from a place in Finland to California because that's where the incentives are. Um, You were talking about the the SAF incentives that RSB helps uh, clarify. We recently, uh, unfortunately, didn't pass, but the um, Build Back Better plan in the US, Blender's tax credit was a huge part of incentivizing sustainable aviation fuel. And so I'd love to talk about sustainable aviation fuel in RSP's work specifically to help demonstrate the power of sustainability standards. And so for people who are wondering, what is the life cycle of a sustainability standard? Who's developing it? Who's paying for that development? Who uses it? What are the certification bodies? Can you tell us a little bit about the players in the room that make it so impactful? Absolutely. Happy to do that. Maybe first question, who develops sustainability standards? I mentioned um, just previously how how important it is to have this very, very inclusive process when developing a sustainability standard, because this really brings all the perspectives in. And this also allows us to develop solutions that are really, really innovative, to develop solutions that we developed already a decade ago and already then foresaw the urgency that we will soon have and therefore already set a sustainability standard with such an ambition. So it is so important. have to reinforce it again and again to bring as many stakeholders as possible to to the table. The RSB is a membership-based organization. So we have over 100 members from the different sectors, um, civil um, society organizations, academia, and it is them who take the final decision on the standard. So they are organized in five chambers. So we have the industry chambers, we have the chamber for producers, for brands, and we have the civil society chambers, one environmental chamber, one social chamber, and the fifth chamber is the chamber for academia and research. And they all elect their delegates for the RSB General General Assembly. And this is the highest decision-making organ of the RSB. The RSB General Assembly takes the decision on the standards and all chambers are represented in there. We strive for consensus across the RSB membership. And this means in the RSB system, the members do not only have a voice, they also have a vote. And this this differentiates us from the other um, sustainability standards and benchmarks, because this really ensures the robustness of the organization. And uh, looking at funding um, of the RSB standard development um, processes. So we have funding through the RSB membership fees that contribute, of course, a big, big chunk of standard development. We will be right back to the show after this quick message from Climate People. Season three of the Net Zero Life is powered by Climate People. Climate People is a technology recruiting firm dedicated to decarbonizing the economy through placing mission-driven talent into climate tech careers. We focus on data, software, product, and user experience recruitment across all climate sectors. Whether you're a job seeker looking to use your skills for good 
or a hiring manager looking to build out your team of mission-driven engineers, Climate People can take care of your talent acquisition needs so you can focus on bringing the world closer to net zero emissions. So RSB is a great example of all the players in the room having a nuanced conversation. How do you balance the voices of the different players in the room and the different chamber members, you know, those who have money per se, and those who have power and those who are affected the most by the impacts of climate change all coming together and then producing a standard that is hopefully a consensus of everyone's voice. And that truly moves the world closer to net zero. Yeah, this of course is, is embedded in enshrined in the in the governance structure of the organization through this chamber system so that the the chambers with money would not be able to overrule the other chambers so this is really key to have such a clear governance structure and such clear decision making mechanisms i also know many many other organizations claim to have ngo input but it is just ngo input in the rsb all the different stakeholder types have the decision making power and that of course forces those who develop the standards to take the all perspectives in consideration because otherwise um, any agreement would, would fail. Maybe to talk also a little bit further about the implementation of the standard because it's also a critical piece and previously asked also about auditors and certification bodies and how, how they come into play. Because of course it is great to have a sustainability standard. But then the big question is, how how is it really implemented? How can we ensure that a product that is claiming to be in compliance with the RSB standard really is in line with, with all the requirements that our, that our stakeholders um, developed? So we have also an auditing and certification structure defined in our system. And when I say auditing and certification, it is about auditors, or can also call them verifiers, who really go to the origin of a feedstock. So they would really visit an agricultural farm, for example, where they where they look at the RSB sustainability criteria and verify that the production of the farm is in compliance. So taking, for example, the example of let's say a agricultural residues, straw, corn stover, how it is called in the US. So the RSB has to find how to source corn stover in a sustainable way. Because here you have all the important questions about soil health and how to define how much can be taken from uh, from a field and what would be methods and, and approaches to define it. And those are the questions that we that we determined in our stakeholder consultation and that we agreed upon with our with our RSB membership. But then the standard gets implemented by the operator and then audited by the um, by the auditor. And they would then, the auditors would then go to the field and check how much or how has been identified looking at the specific uh, context, the climate conditions, soil conditions, the crop type, how much agricultural residues could be taken from that field without harming the soil health. And they then verify 
that the operator really follows this this approach. But then to take it further, when the material that is sourced is loaded to a truck, it is then important to really track the volume of the audited, of the certified material through the entire supply chains. So the auditors have then to verify in an industrial facility. So in this example, industrial facilities that produce ethanol, and this ethanol could then further be processed to jet fuel to verify the conversion factor. So how much fuel can actually produce from that amount of an agricultural residue. And also the sustainability parameters within the processing facilities, so that it is not only about the agricultural production, but also in the industrial facility to look at aspects like air emissions and water pollutions and worker rights. And once the full supply chain is compliant, the certificate can be issued and the final product can be RSB certified. Maybe to conclude, also with one one topic that I know that you and your listeners are, are specifically interested in the greenhouse gas emission calculation, because at the end, an alternative jet fuel has to demonstrate or it has to be demonstrated that that alternative fuel generates significantly less emissions than, than a fossil jet fuel. And for that, the full life cycle calculation of greenhouse gas emission is needed and also needs to be verified by the auditors, starting from the agricultural land where the, um, where the feedstock is sourced. So here, aspects come into play like the, um, the energy needed, um, also the fertilizers applied to the field. So you would calculate then the, the LCA profile of the agricultural product. But then step by step going through the supply chain, you would need to add the emissions, so the emissions of transport, transporting the agricultural product into the next um, processing facility, and also all the following transport steps. And within the processing facilities, the amount of heat that you would need, the amount of electricity you would need and chemicals and whether there are any um, emissions, they all are calculated in one life cycle value for the final product. And in the RSB standard, this value needs to be 60% less than the equivalent fossil fuel type. A concrete example or a concrete parallel example is for people who drive a car, when you go to the dealer and or you purchase your car, you believe that it has a certain number of miles per gallon or kilometers per liter. Right. And, and there's an organization behind that that verifies that number. And, uh, you know, RSB work, I think, is a great example of how that impacts gallons, kilograms of CO2 per gallon of jet fuel or whatever. Um, trust is so paramount in any market. Uh, it's you have to believe that when you're purchasing a carbon offset, it's truly making an impact. You have to believe that when you're purchasing a sustainable uh, a gallon of sustainable aviation fuel, it's reducing your life cycle emissions. At the same time, you mentioned LCA, life cycle analysis, which is this process of calculating and verifying the total emissions from a process is expensive, it's long, and it's also static. And so I'm curious if RSB is working in the blockchain technology space to help make LCAs more dynamic, 
verify that trust, remove any one person from dominating the lifecycle process flow. It's funny that you're asking this question because we just hired a new RSB team member um, who's a, our new digital solutions manager who will exactly look into how can we how can we advance uh, our our tools um, into into new in, in, into a new way to exactly do what you what you say how can we be more not only more efficient but also more effective in what we are doing when we are um, verifying LCAs, but also going beyond. It is it is not only about the, the, the LCA verification or our ambition on the topic is much broader. One great example is, is the work that we are currently doing um, on the um, SAF supply chains and how sustainably certified SAF can be brought to the market. Currently, there are only a couple of facilities worldwide that on a commercial scale produce SAF. And for the individual airlines at the different locations globally, it is quite difficult to source sustainably certified SAF with a with a very, very good LC, um, greenhouse gas LCA. So we are currently working on a solution that would enable the sourcing of sustainably certified stuff without having to transport it across across the globe. And this solution will, of course, include a digital solution like a digital registry, and that could be based on a blockchain, but not necessarily. I think we also need to be a bit careful to really make use of the blockchain technology where it is really needed because we all know of the of big energy consumption. And this this registry will enable us to solve the challenge of sustainably certified stuff only being available in a few places. And you can maybe compare it to uh, something like a renewable electricity that, that we're working on, but it is... Uh, the discussion is a bit more complex than, than renewable electricity. And so the the solution also has to be has to be advanced and better. RSP also works with countries around the world. Can you share any stories that that's impacted you in terms of RSP's work in countries that um, traditionally don't have the strongest voice in the climate change conversation? Well, absolutely. And I think Ethiopia is, is really a great example because in Ethiopia, we were able to work with the stakeholders in the regions, with the relevant representatives of the ministries, with industry representatives, with, with science, more producers, to together work on a roadmap on how could in that country, how could in Ethiopia, SAF production be scaled, SAF production that is based on sustainably available feedstocks. And we developed this based on a great assessment that we have done on the availability of and opportunities for um, sustainable feedstock development. And we convened all these stakeholders together to agree on a roadmap on steps that need to be taken um, in this country to be able to develop um, such, uh, such a staff industry in the country. And I think this is a great example because it also shows the ambition 
and the motivation in a country like Ethiopia to really progress on on such a topic, an ambition uh, that I do not see globally. It's really it's really very very special. If you were not working at RSB, where would you be spending your time? It's also a very good question. Not working for the RSB, I I love hiking. I have the Alps around the corner. I love to go there with my two-year-old. I, I still have to carry her on my on my back. Um, and yeah, it's definitely that. Yeah. Speaking of your two-year-old, what kind of lessons um, and ideologies are you hoping to impart in her as she grows up uh, in this world that you know is truly acknowledging? The, the climate change impact that we are facing today. And then she might be responsible for uh, dealing now, with the consequences. It's also a very good question. Of course, there's the, the obvious the obvious things about how we see our resources to make sure we are, we are efficiently using our resources, separating our wastes, all these topics. But it's... It's another it's another topic that became more and more important to me. I think the the challenges that we now have as a global society, they're not only urgent, but they will also and they already have changed our society a lot. It will demand a lot from all of us to transform the way how we produce, how we consume, how we travel and a part, of course, from making these changes, because it is so demanding to all of us, what I think really needs to, what well, we all, all need to need to improve on how we care for and nurture our, our personal relationships of the people around us, the relationships to, to those closest to us, to those in our, in our communities, how the relationships to the to the people who actually pick up our separated ways, the relationships to our to our parents, to to the people in the school, because we as a global society, we need to we need to grow together to be strong enough to make all these changes. So, of course, apart from all these innovations and technology solutions and lifestyle changes, we need to come back to a place where we where we value us as ourselves apart from having an Instagram profile or a LinkedIn profile and also nurture and grow the relationships with people around us. And this is a key thing that that is important for me and, and, and raising my daughter. I, I think it's safe to say that she's in great hands. What is one book, podcast, or other form of media that you've enjoyed learning from in terms of building your sustainability knowledge? There's also many, I would say. Um, there's the one from Richard Powers called Overstory, with, and that gave me so much knowledge about trees and how this complex system of forest functions. And I found it really so amazing and also surprising to hear 
how how trees are able to communicate with each other to to warn each other to have even sympathy for each other and i read this interestingly at a time where we in the rsb developed the new rsb standard for the use of biomass from woody resources and that actually impacted a lot of um, my my perspective on forests and also how i i value intact forests if listeners haven't uh, made the decision to read the overstory, I think you are the third person out of 10. So at least 30% of guests in season three of The Net Zero Life have specifically mentioned Richard Bauer's uh, book, The Overstory. And he recently came out with a new one that I haven't read, but I 100% agree. If you haven't read The Overstory, yeah. it absolutely changes the way that you view trees and view the forest and um, appreciate nature around us. Absolutely. But at the same time, I must also say I... I appreciated a lot this additional insights into yeah the whole forest story but at the same time I must also say that I found it unnecessary brutal and that's something that I must say annoys me more and more also in films and TV series and books I find even watching the news that becomes more and more brutal what we are exposed to. And reading it, I, I was also annoyed that obviously it doesn't stop with books. I always found books to be somehow a safe, safe place or where we are not exposed of a brutality of that extent. Now of course you could say maybe it is maybe it is necessary, but I said no, no, it is not necessary to tell these stories. You don't need to be brutal to tell these stories. And I think that's perfectly in line with your work at RSB, right? Which is all about bringing individuals from the different perspectives together and coming up with a consensus. Although there are lots of people who disagree and say that we need to be more unilateral. When you hear the word sustainability superhero, who comes to mind? That's a really difficult question, I must say. For me, sustainability superheroes are all these people and local communities who have project, a side project that they do on top of their work to earn a living. So those that do something, voluntary on something. So for example, here where we live in the community, um, we just recently um, joined a cooperative um, to, to rent a plot of land where we can do our own agriculture. And those people organizing that, they're superheroes because they do this on top of their normal job. And they spend time there and organize with, with a specific purpose because they want they want me to learn more about really how it is to, to grow your own beans and potatoes. And that is fantastic. hundred percent. And for people who are, uh, you can do the same thing with waste, you know, go to your, um, go through the process of where your municipal waste goes to and see where it ends up. And it will truly change. I mean, similar to the overstory, it will change how you view waste streams. And uh, just like reading the overstory, it will change how you view trees. Before we close, many people listening are wondering how to get their first job in climate. You took a gap year uh, and decided to work and you know dedicate your time to the space. What advice do you have for people who are trying to transition mid-career into the climate technology or climate uh, ecosystem? I find that conversations that we are having with our stakeholders, that they require 
a real profound technical knowledge. So while, of course, there is always um, opportunities to develop new business models, to tell new stories, for all of us in the RSB team, it is important that we all have a certain level of technical profoundness, that we understand what we are talking about. Um, and this conversation today showed it because we very, very quickly come into a conversation where we're suddenly talking about conversion yields of facilities and different pathways of alcohol to jet production. And I think it's it's very, very difficult to enter a career without having a bit of understanding of chemical or, or physical processes. So that would be my recommendation. But apart from that, also my own career, I never had this this master idea about one time I will be the executive director of the RSB and those are the steps that, that will lead me there. And the what I mentioned about that I just, that I just rejected the uh, biochemical engineer thing at the university, even I got it and, and, and followed my heart. I think that's key, that follow your heart, follow, follow what you want to do, follow what you, inspires you. That will, will bring you to a place where you love your job and then you can also excel in what you're doing. I think that is a perfect place to close. Elena, it's been such a pleasure. Uh, I truly have enjoyed my time. I can't believe we're already running up against it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure, Nathan. Thanks again to Elena for joining us today. You can connect with her on LinkedIn, Elena Schmidt, E-L-E-N-A, S-C-H-M-I-D-T. Or if you want to follow RSB's work, they are on Twitter. That's RSB underscore org, O-R-G. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion and it is in no way reflective of my employer. It's also not meant as investment advice. This episode was produced by Tony Levitt, the original music composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climb On. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear and you want to support our work, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and now Spotify too. Follow us, subscribe, and check out our socials at The Net Zero Life. Until next week, I'm Nathan Svee, and this is The Net Zero Life. Hold up. 